All right. So let's talk about music. Uh, my name is Sergio Verrer, and I'm a composer and a pianist with a classical background. My guest today is Alex Shapiro, a composer um, that is doing right now more electroacoustic music than anything else. But let's uh, have her introduce herself uh, with a little bit of her story as a composer. Hi, Sergio. It's great to talk to you. And uh, Sergio and I first met in Los Angeles many years ago, so it's it's nice to reconnect on his podcast. Um, basically, I, I have been very fortunate to make my living as a composer for a long time now. And I started, I grew up in New York City in Manhattan, mm -hmm. and uh, I had two major things going for me there. One was growing up in Manhattan and having every kind of music available to me as a kid all the time. And especially once I came of age and was a teenager and could, you know, make my way around the city, uh, whether it was the punk rock scene or Lincoln Center in Carnegie Hall or the Metropolitan Opera, or you know, <laughs> the Village Vanguard and the Blue Note, whatever it was, I I had it, uh, you know, served right up to me basically, and um, I was very fortunate. And also in the city were wonderful music schools. So I stayed in the city till I was 21. I went uh, to uh, Manus College of Music one summer, and then I went to I did go to Colorado to go to Aspen Music School and Festival the next couple of summers uh, when I was 16 and 17 as a composer, and then um, I went to Juilliard pre-college for uh, about a year or two, and then after that went to Manhattan School of Music. So I had some of the most wonderful composition studies until I moved out when I was uh, 21, moved out to Los Angeles where I lived for 24 years. And the first 15 years of that was writing purely commercial music, you know, for, for low budget features and television and uh, corporate videos and documentaries and all kinds of things um, in the Wayback Machine, CD-ROMs. This was before the internet. This was in the 80s, you know, 80s into the 90s uh, that I was doing this kind of work. And I had always studied electronic music along with my uh, composing studies because I was always fascinated by it. And I loved building synthesizers and wiring things up and, you know, figuring out what all the patch chords did. I never wrote any particularly good music Music with that early stuff in the 70s. Uh, and I didn't try, I was just fascinated by the process. But it turned out that that experimentation and my, you know, geek tendencies served me really well when I got into commercial music, because then I set up, of course, a project studio, which every composer needs to have really. Uh, and I and that studio got more and more involved and, uh, and pretty nice over the years. And then finally, we switched over, you know, in time from analog to by the mid to late 90s, all digital. And right. uh, my studio grew with that. And around the, that time, the mid to late 90s, I also made a change personally in my direction. I decided I had had just about enough of scoring commercial projects, uh, which was a lot of fun musically, because you know you write in all kinds of different styles and it was a lot of fun. But I realized I really wanted to write concert music again, which I hadn't done in, since I was in music school. And I decided to just flip my career when I was about 37, 38. I just left pursuing commercial stuff and decided to create a career kind of out of whole cloth <laughs> writing uh, concert music. And I, and I began for many years, I, I wrote chamber music because that's, that was to me the easiest way to sort of start establishing myself and work with musicians and get the pieces heard and recorded. And uh, around that same time, you know, because it was the late 90s, this is when the internet became a thing for all of us. And that also was very fortuitous because I understood 
programming. I understood how how it worked and and how to use it to one's advantage as a composer to reach people all over the world and to work with musicians all over the world. And that really was just dumb good timing, you know? And I also had a good sense of business from having uh, done work in Hollywood for so many years. I understood what contracts were. I understood the worth of copyright because under those contracts, <laughs> everybody else owned the piece, not me. It was these are called work for hire contracts. And so I, I started a publishing company to handle my own concert music. So I kind of had the business side, you know, up and running too. So I wrote a lot of music and got it out there and was doing that very happily for about 10 years. And then, and during that time, I moved up from Los Angeles to San Juan Island off the coast of Washington state, right on the Canadian border. And that was in about 2007. And later that year, out of the blue, I got a uh, request for a commission from the US Army for a wind band piece. And that was completely out of my wheelhouse. I had no idea about wind band. I don't think I'd ever seen a euphonium. <laughs> well, growing up in Manhattan, my school did not have a wind band. And I had not ever been to a wind band concert. I had never written for wind band. And I told the lovely uh, commander, the uh, at the time he's major, now he's Lieutenant Colonel, Todd Addison. I told him all of this. I said, I'd, I'd be thrilled to do this. This is um, really outside of my comfort zone. Take a risk. But I have to tell you, I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, that, uh, that apparently was exactly why he wanted me, because he figured I'd write something fresh and new for the media, right. having heard my chamber music. So I was off and running and it turns out that that opened a huge door to me. I loved writing for this powerful large ensemble and uh, then sought out more opportunities to write for these wind bands by attending a big conference uh, later that year in Chicago called the Midwest Clinic, which has about 20,000 attendees in band and orchestra is a big deal. And I just figured, well, I only have one piece, but I'd like to do more of this and I want to meet people. And uh, that 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 ended up turning out really, really well, because I did get a couple of opportunities uh, from attending that con that conference. So they kind of put me on the map for this new and exciting part of my career. And what's specifically important about this is that the first piece, Homecoming, that I did for the Army, which is still performed, uh, all that, I didn't, I didn't fail miserably, fortunately, on that one. Um, it, was, it was just a great learning experience to, to have this sonic palette all of a sudden. Um, that piece is purely acoustic. But then as I considered the upcoming commissions for band pieces that were coming in, and I also considered the incredible work that so many of my colleagues were doing and had been doing for a very long time uh, in the wind band field with extraordinary orchestration and beautiful pieces. And I started to get intimidated thinking, how am I ever gonna sound like that? You know, that's, they, they sound amazing. And then I snapped out of it and realized, oh, I don't have to sound like them. <laughs> They've got that covered. I, I do not have to sound like that. I can figure out what is my sound? What do I really bring to the table for this repertoire? And of course, that obvious answer was all the work I'd been doing with electronics my whole life from the time I was 15 and then through commercial music. And then even in my chamber music days, I wrote a few uh, electroacoustic pieces for soloists and duos. And I was off and running. I, I basically asked my commissioners these first two pieces. The first one is Paper Cut, and the next one was Immersion, and they're very different pieces. And I asked if, if an electroacoustic piece would be all right, and they both said, sure. And that was still weird back then. There weren't many of them back then. And uh, once again, I was off and running, and I found my voice, and I found something that I really loved is the seamless melding 
of uh, a large instrumental section of live musicians with a pre-recorded, in my case, a pre-recorded uh, kind of cinematic track um, that gives great depth and range uh, to the um, uh, to add to the incredible sound of the wind band. So that's what I've been doing. I, I still write chamber music and solo piano music and all that, but many of my more notable commissions over the past you know, 10 or 12 years have been for electroacoustic wind band. So there's my happy story. <laughs> wow, it's interesting. I just want to remark on something, how what one does throughout his life comes back sometimes, you know, in most unexpected ways like all your fiddling with the electronic stuff when you're doing commercial music yeah. also, you know, and learning all that all of a sudden when you be, went to a concert scene, there it was, you know, it's a, uh, it, it happens to everybody, you know, things that the, the road is not totally what you think it's going to be. It's Absolutely. That's such an important message is the, there is no one path and there is no direct path. Mo most of the time you end up, you know, traveling around that right. river and around the different bends and the water keeps changing and you change with it, hopefully. And yeah. instead of being rigid about your expectations about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, stay really open to opportunities and take risks and say yes to them and, and go and, with your fear, you know? <laughs> yeah, no. And, and don't ever think that you are wasting your time. If you yeah. That's the thing. That's what I was going for because it seemed like, oh, well, I'm doing this stuff that I don't really want to do and I would rather be doing this and stuff. But then 20 years later, you come back and you say, well, that really helped me, you know? Right. So, so it, it's the ways of the, the path, one's path are very, you know, one doesn't know. One just That's tries right. to go ahead. Anyway, I wanted to... Uh, to ask you then to show us this uh, this piece that I heard called Ascent, mm -hmm. which is a very, very interesting example of uh, of what you do of your electroacoustic music. So um, would, if you would be so kind to play it for us. Sure, let me explain it a little bit. I'll set it up for mm -hmm. the listeners um, so that they know kind of why, why it was written the way it was. Um, uh, the uh, director of bands at University of Hawaii uh, is, a, is a wonderful friend and colleague named Jeffrey Beckman. And he had put together uh, not too long ago, six composers, I was not one of them, six Hawaii-based composers to write a really beautiful suite for wind band. Uh, actually, I think the first version was for orchestra and then they made a wind band version called Symphony of the Hawaiian Birds. And so six short movements by six different composers. And Jeffrey decided, you know, I think it would be great to start this off with some kind of, you know, concert opener, you know, whatever that would be, just something to, to start it all off. And I thought about that. He invited me to do it. And I thought, what a great commission, what a really fun thing to do. I had not done a concert opener before. And so this is a very short piece. It's like two and a half minutes. And I thought about the nature of birds because that's what it was following. Things that fly, things that go into the sky, things that go upward. <laughs> and you'll right. hear that uh, there's a lot of sound design in there of everything from birds to jet airplanes. And in live performance, these sounds are very loud, especially the airplanes to the point where the intent is the way I've mixed it is that the audience members almost feel like they have to duck, <laughs> you know, when the oh, wow. when they hear that, that uh, jet uh, coming and, and then later uh, again, ascending. 
And I also decided to take on the challenge since I was preceding a lot of music that was very strong in melody and themes and rhythms. I decided to challenge myself to write a piece of music that would be emotional and effective and stirring, but not use any melody or any rhythm. So here is Ascent. And that was conductor Jeffrey Beckman with the University of Hawaii uh, Symphonic Wind, Wind Ensemble, excuse me, uh, premiering the piece uh, in Honolulu right before the pandemic shut everything down. That was the last performance it had. It was scheduled for a bunch more performances. <laughs> and then uh, I was very lucky to, to get that live one. That was a live concert recording. So well, that was, did a great you know, job with it. You managed to keep it going up all the time? Yep, it's completely wow. ascending. And <laughs> I use I use a little too. This is, this is the ascending scale that I've heard because I'm still waiting for it to go down. You know exactly. <laughs> Plus, there's a little psychoacoustic thing in there, which I think might be able to be heard better. You know, in in live performance, I'm not sure. But I use something that a lot of film composers uh, make use of, uh, called a shepherd tone, which is a little oral trick, a u r a l trick. Uh, that basically 
it creates a sonic barber pole, <laughs> if you will, of, of ascending or descending, you can do it in either direction, sounds using uh, octave displacement and registration and just fading in and out. So when one ends, the other starts to begin, you know, different octaves, usually do it with about three octaves. It's a fun technique. And I have that, I programmed that in the track and that's going on in the background as well which is pretty cool. Uh, so it gives this psychoacoustic sense of just up, 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 up. And I, and I figured that's where you want to go. I don't want to land, you know. <laughs> I just sort of fade out with the crickets and the birds. That's it. <laughs> and you leave everyone just expecting the music. That's you know, what it, I was it's hoping. It's like a perfect prelude because it's like a prelude. Here, get Hold on to your seats. You're going to get music. Here we go. Here we come. Here we come. Here. And it's like a few minutes of here we come and then you're totally ready. That was very interesting. I didn't know about the ship. How do you call it? Shepherd tone? The shepherd tone. A shepherd tone. A yeah. Shepherd tone. It's an interesting, interesting concept. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of information about it and it's, and it's fun. And there are examples. You can listen to the different versions of it online. Um, and uh, it's a fun thing to create. I almost, I programmed it and I had it as part of the track. At first, my intent, my desire was uh -huh. to actually have the uh, musicians or some of the musicians doing the shepherd tone, but it was more, it's much more challenging to do live because of the intricacies of fading in and fading out at exactly the right time. And with all this other stuff going on, I figured it was probably more trouble than it was worth, especially for the poor conductor to have that going, you know, and be responsible for that while balancing all the other chaos, intentional chaos that I had going on with that track. So I decided to just um, uh, create it myself. Uh, so, uh, but it's in there. It's subtle, you know, it's a subtle little thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, the great thing about being a composer is there's no rules. We can do anything we want. You know, we can. And and as you'll hear in the next piece, it's wildly different. <laughs> there are no rules. <laughs> yeah. Um, I. People don't know this, but this is our second attempt at this podcast because somehow I didn't push the record button the first time. So I know some of the answers to this, but I was very interested in this when we were talking the last time. You say you compose both things at the same time. You, while you're writing the acoustic parts, you are also doing the the track, the 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 digital the, audio, the yeah. digital audio. Yeah. How does that work? How I mean, it's like notes, like a full set of notes you know, the top part, the audio, and then the bottom part, a mix that you're gonna, that you're gonna do later? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's if you think of a big, big, long piece of manuscript paper, uh, that we would know traditionally as composers, you know, where you have your starting with the woodwinds, <laughs> and going down if it's for orchestra going down to the strings, or if it's for band, you know, going down to the percussion, and uh, with brass, you know, woodwinds, brass, percussion, double basses, um, then uh, there is an additional section. And that's what the electronics are. That's what the digital audio is. It's an additional and equal section of the large ensemble that creates sounds that the I cannot get from the musicians. So it complements the ensemble. I'm not trying to be emulative. I'm not trying to be, be a fake bassoon or a fake viola or any of that. I'm not, I've got the music, musicians to play those parts but I can create textures and I can create spatial movement and I can create very, very high and subsonically low uh, registration pitches and, and sound worlds that I cannot do with the uh, instrumentalists. And so 
they complement each other, I write around the frequencies that would be played by the instruments so that there is this sense of space. You know, I, I take up, you know, certain ranges with the track that I'm not going to step on, um, you know, with the instruments and vice versa. And the whole thing kind of meshes together. In live performance, it's designed so that it triangulates to the audience. So the people on stage, the conductor and the ensemble, don't hear the full mix. It's not meant for them to hear it. They just chug along and, and have faith that it's all going to sound good. But I, um, I design it so that the end result out in the hall is going to be one of balance. And that's just in, in the mix. And also in a simple instruction that when you're doing, at least my pieces, I don't know about my colleagues uh, with theirs, but with mine, you want the track as loud as the band's gonna be. So if they're both equally present, you're gonna get that seamless blend. It's it's quite fun. And and yes, everything is written vertically. And now it's I, an analogy I love to use is sculpting. If we were sculpting a bust, let's say a head and a neck, uh -huh. um, you, you get the blob of the head on there with the clay and you and a, and a crude neck. Then maybe you start with a nose. You kind of get the beginnings of a nose. Then you go up to the forehead. But then you go back to the nose to get that a little bit more in context. Then you go down to the jaw. Then back up to the nose to get a little more in shape. So everything is contextually sculpted. You start with a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and you keep adding to it so that it all balances each other. And that's that's at least the way I compose, you know, and so it's all there in front of me. And I'm, you know, I'm writing for a horn here and an oboe there and a double bass thing there and then an electronic blip blop look, you know, black <laughs> texture, weird thing, whoosh. And then, you know, all it's all at the same time. And so it's like knitting a sweater or something. I don't knit, but I would imagine that's what knitting's like. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> knitting seems easier, but uh <laughs> But uh, it's uh, it's it sounds like you know it's it's like the process of of uh, everybody has its own process. I I know a, a composer that does a lot of TV composing. That he says first he writes it for piano, then he writes for for six staffs, you know, for the woodwinds, uh, brass and and strings and then he both you know then he works it out i i work with a full score and i go first with a mel the melodic line is what takes me places but i keep i keep doing every two bars you know i do the melody two bars and then vertical two bars and two bars and two bars and that's right. how i work my work you know everybody everybody has its own thing Exactly. There's no wrong way to do it. You know, it's it's however one hears and however one wants to, you know, notate that expression, basically. Um, you know, if you're just doing an electronic mix that no one, no musician has to play, notation doesn't matter because you're just working in the yeah. audio realm. But the minute you have to make it, notate it so that other human beings who you will never meet are, have to read it down and read it well the way that you intend it so that the end result is what you intend, that becomes, uh, you know, trickier and you have to put a lot of thought thought into that. And yeah, I, I, I'm more like you. I go back, forth, back, forth. I just don't, I'm not always, uh, as we just heard, you know, not led by a melody a lot of the time. Sometimes it's a motivic yep. idea of just a gesture or a whoosh or a rhythm or or something. In a groove-based piece, for instance, the one we're about to hear, Tight Squeeze, there's an example where I did have a pretty good sense of the groove and laid in a few bars of that before I started writing some of the other things along with it. Because the track in this case is, 
heavily, not entirely, but heavily um, uh, techno percussion. So electronic percussion, the kind of percussion sounds that you can't get from your live percussion instruments. Very different kind of percussion. Yeah, for my friends that don't know just terminology, what is a groove? Oh, a groove. A groove basically is kind of a repetitive rhythm that often, if we call it a groove, it often means it, it, your body's going to want to move to it. <laughs> you might want to dance to it. Uh, there are repetitive rhythms that can just plod along and be repetitive and rhythmic, but they're not quite a groove, you know, and uh, they're not something you would necessarily move to. Um, so a groove is a certain kind of repetitive uh, rhythm. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we hear that? that uh, sure. and i'm going to play you uh, a live another live recording this was actually a recording at made at uh, from a performance at the midwest clinic of which i spoke earlier mm -hmm. and this is um charlie mangini the uh, conductor of the vandercook college of music uh, symphonic band and here they go with tight squeeze very different piece than ascent
very nice. Yeah, so there you go. That's a little different than Ascent. There are, and, and there's something very different for, for anybody listening who, who is uh, a musician. Um, that is not only a very chromatic theme, you know, da 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 da, da but it's um, a 12 tone row. And <laughs> no, it's, it goes 12 notes before any of the notes repeat themselves uh, horizontally, not vertically. I didn't, I didn't go all the way with the 12 tone serial. Uh, concept, but it is a 12-tone row that I built that whole piece on. But of course, I harmonized it as I wanted to, and to make it a little bit more like a big band chart. And uh, so it's, I had a lot of fun putting that together and the mot and keeping it very motivically tight. Motivic meaning the the uh, recognizable little snippets of the melody that you yeah. hear, and just taking small parts of that and turning them on on their ear and developing them but not straying too far from the material because, hey, it's only a three-minute piece. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go that far. Yeah. You don't want to use too many ideas, no, but you want to keep them interesting. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, you know, I was, when I was listening to this, I was thinking, you know, when you go into a symphonic band, well, particularly your brand of uh, symphonic band, there is three traditions that you're drawing from. You have the big band tradition, you have the the college band tradition like the the ones that play you know in a in a stadium in the intermission of a football game the marching bands yep the marching bands yep. and then you have your cinematic uh tradition and this this had a little bit of everything but but uh i could i could really hear the big band thing and i could really hear the cinematic thing this if this would have been part of a James Bond movie, it would have been okay. You know what I mean? It, it, it sounded kind of James Bondy to me. I love <laughs> I it. I don't know why, but that's uh, great. Well, there's a little bit. I, I to me, there's a little bit of like a, a Henry Mancini kind of you know oh, vibe oh, in yeah, there, yeah. sneaking in there somewhere. Um, and yes, believe it or not, somebody did do a marching band arrangement of it as well. So it has been done on the field. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting instrument the the big the symphonic band because it has it comes from different traditions and yep. in america you know it was the big band jazz era it was totally american music it was probably well it's not the only uh authentic american music there is but it really is really american you know yeah. from the united states of america it, it's so so um so you and, you and yeah after after about 20 seconds i was tapping my foot to it yep therein lies the groove because <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of other rhythmic pieces that don't make you move like that you know so that's when we talk about groove music folks that's what we're talking about something like that i've done a few a few groove things and uh and it's always fun you know it's just fun there as i said there are no rules in in music making and there used to be a fair number of them and then the internet happened and now we can all find our niche and create our own niches and find the people that are going to dig what we do and not worry about all the people who aren't and not have to be put in little categories and and you know little niches to be sold by publishers and record companies and all that record labels we can just do our own thing and that's been very significant for artists um for the past 25 years the ability for desktop publishing and self-publishing and being able to get your work out there and let it sink or swim on its own merit without worrying so much about being approved of by you know gatekeepers and higher ups 
which I, I just love that. I love the freedom that artists have now. I, uh, I agree. There is also a thing that uh, my friend Bernardo Feldman, a composer from Los Angeles, you might have met, you might not, but uh, he's more in the real forward avant-garde. Um, he was with Cage when Cage was here. <laughs> but he told me one thing about Los Angeles that is very interesting. You know, in Los Angeles, in New York, you have more on your shoulders the weight of Europe. When you go west, that kind of goes. That does, you, you don't have it as bad. So you I've, been, have yeah, I've been saying the same thing for many years. I, as a New Yorker, I say the exact same thing. Yeah. He's absolutely right. There's yeah. a, I call it the proximity to Europe. Uh, axiom that the closer you are to Europe, the more you the cultural scene around you seems to be connected to that. And Europe, in some ways, there are some areas of it are avant-garde, and other areas are still stuck in like the 1950s and 60s when it comes to some stuff that was going on in concert music. It's a, it's an interesting scene there, and there's a, there's still a lot of um, uh, you know kind of throwback stuff. Whereas out west, really anything goes, and uh, the the further away from Europe yeah. you are, it's true. I mean, you know, you look at Lou Harrison or Terry Riley or you know some of the West Coast people from you know who were doing their thing in, in the 60s and 70s, you know, who got away from um, uh, from the norms of the East Coast and did and created their own stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Um, definitely there is there is a there is a freedom, and I used to miss a little bit the the European influence, but now I enjoy being in the West Coast and not having to worry too much about about that. I was in Minneapolis and in. Uh, at the end of last year, doing a, a new piece about immigrants, and I um, and you still find a little bit of. I I decided that this was going to be a very tonal piece that I I wanted to to honor these these uh, immigrants, and uh, I wanted it to be tonal and I wanted it to be performed by high school level choirs. I didn't want to do a, a virtuosistic piece because I wanted it. I wanted these kids to have access to all these stories that I'm going to tell towards this. And yep. still some people, you know, oh no, that's kind of too simple. And I, you know what? I'm not writing it for you, man. I'm writing it exactly. for these guys, you know? I'm writing yep. it for, um, for, for the kids that, first of all, when you start studying music and where you're studying, you know, uh, your, your basic harmony you have to start with the basic harmony then you can go somewhere wherever you want but it's all based on a certain set of principles you know and um and so yeah i feel i feel that right now if you want to write something very tonal you can and if you want to go and do something without any tonality i was going to tell you a friend of mine runs um uh, runs a chamber orchestra in Vienna mm -hmm. and he told me that if your if your music is not atonal they won't play it that's right 
That's right. You know? That's very true. Um, it's kind of a, it's, they're stuck in these past judgments of what is considered good by some kind of musical literati. You know, it's, it's silly. It's silly. I mean, there's, there's wonderful tonal, there's wonderful atonal, and yeah. there's wonderful pieces that do both simultaneously. I've certainly written in both languages within the same piece, and that's the freedom that we have. And it's, it's sort of unfortunate when, any institution or ensemble feels like there's only one legitimate answer. And that's the same tr thing, by the way, for ensembles that only want to play very deeply tonally centered pieces. They're missing right. out on a whole world you know, right. of expression. There should, everybody should be really interested in playing everything because also your audience members, if you're, a, if you're a performing ensemble, your audience is going to be interested in a lot of different things. And some people are going to be more interested in one than the other, and you never know who that is. So when you give people kind of a mixed bag on a program you're pretty much ensuring that everybody is going to leave that concert having enjoyed something on the program you know yeah. it, something will have spoken to their condition and and sometimes even if they don't enjoy it quote unquote the fact that they get interested or that right. their mind gets open in a certain direction it's worth it absolutely because, because you, don't know, you don't know what's gonna come out of that you know it's uh it's it's uh yeah I, I don't like anyone to tell me what i can do or can't do you know it's, no and that's good as an artist you shouldn't ever you know have right. to be limited by someone else's stuff and and if someone comes to you and occasionally i'm sure commissioners do ask a ask a composer to hey we want it to sound kind of a certain way and every composer has the right to say that's great i respect that and i'm i'm not the right person for your commission you know let me let me suggest some other terrific composers who are you know yeah. i do that <laughs> the, so. yeah philip glass an anecdote about philip glass once he was asked, so what do you say to people that don't like your music? And he says, well, I say that there is a lot of other composers that you can go to, you exactly. know? Exactly. You None know? of us expect everybody to love what we do. We're, we're focused on attracting the people that do like what we do and right. expanding that circle. That's great. But, you know, the great thing about making a, a living, a career doing this is it doesn't take that many people to have a sustainable career. It, it, you, know, you don't have to have millions of people behind you. Um, so that's, that's very encouraging. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very nice. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming and uh, chatting me, with me. I'm sure that I recorded it this time. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, will, I will let you know when it's out and I hope that uh, we can keep in touch. Absolutely. It's so fun to talk to you, especially after all these years. And, you know, send me links to your stuff, Sergio. I would love to hear Definitely. more of what you're doing. So keep sending me connections Definitely. to you. We're music. doing just a little pitch. Um, I have I am gotten I have gotten involved in a, in a movement. Well, in, in the movement to help the immigrants in the border. The fact That's that great. I wrote these pieces about immigrants, a few at the end of last year, I went to Minneapolis and I and I interviewed 25 immigrants. I took the text from their stories and I did a choral piece. And uh, we're going to use that choral piece in order to raise funds to get immigrants help. That's These beautiful. People that are in the border. Yeah. And that's one of the that's one of the things that can happen sometimes with music, you know. It can, it can be used for a higher cause than just 
music. Absolutely. Activism through music is so important and it has a lot of impact. It is. That's it is fantastic. Yes. So I'll let you know how, when the concert is and when the, when the function is. Maybe you can let a couple of people know. Absolutely. Oh, congratulations right. on this. What a great project. Thank you very much. Wow. And uh, it was nice talking to you. It's great okay. to talk to you, my friend. Take bye -bye. care. Okay, bye.